Sorry it took me a second to get up here. I, uh, I forgot where I put my notes. That's a little panicky feeling before you, uh, before you preach, but everything's okay now. We're glad you're here, and uh, my name is Brian Habig. If you're visiting, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, <clears throat> Tim Udodge, who was leading us, is one of our pastors. Jake Patton as well, there in the back. And uh, if this is your first time or second time, and you're just trying this on for size, especially welcome. And if there's anything that we can do to be helpful or answer a question, we want to do that. So please let us know. Just so you'll know, we have been looking at Psalms this summer, and this morning is going to wrap us up. And then the plan is, Lord willing, next Sunday to transition back to what we had been studying in the in the uh, winter and the spring. That's the book of Romans. And it's just a, a, a wonderful letter in the New Testament. So we'll pick back up in chapter 7 is the plan this coming Sunday. But we're going to wrap up Psalms. Uh, we haven't looked at all of them. There's 150 of them. But we're going to look at this one lastly, Psalm 148. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. Psalm 148. I heard a radio interview just this week with an author. Uh, he just came out with a novel he served in Iraq as a Marine. He signed up after 9-11, wanted to serve. He didn't have a combat role, but he had a dangerous role. He worked with a crew that would um, clear roads and fill in potholes. And that sounds like not very glamorous, but usually what was in these potholes was a bomb. And uh, one of the, the, the first line from the book that the, uh, the interviewer read grabbed my attention. Now, I've had this psalm just on the brain all week, and I'm going to try to connect the dots here in a second. But this is the line from the, from the novel set in Iraq. Every inch of that place, every grain of sand, wanted desperately to kill us. Let me, let me read it one more time. Every inch of that place, every grain of sand, wanted desperately to kill us. Now, you have enough background with English literature to know that that's not literal, the grain of sand can't literally want to kill you, but it's a way of expressing it, it's not just the people, just everything about the place, the land, the setting, the weather, everything participated in the hostility. This is a psalm which, in a, in a much different way, is calling on not just people but even animals and even objects, even massive objects, to all participate in the same thing. And here's the amazing thing. It, the psalm is calling everything, every object, every person, every creature to participate in what we were all made to do. And if you've ever read the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, the account of the creation, there's a lot of echoes of Genesis 1 in this psalm. What, is it, what does it look like? when the whole universe is doing the thing together that God made it to do. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, 
you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A dean at Wake Forest University up the road coined a term really just a few years ago, and it's made its way into the kind of the mainstream how we talk. A dean at Wake Forest coined the term helicopter parents. Do you know what this term means? Have you heard this? Helicopter parents, generally speaking, are the parents of millennials and usually a higher achieving, higher threshold, somewhat higher income usually. And the way, the way this article, where I first saw that, that, um, that term used, it wasn't just describing the super attentive parent. There have always been super attentive parents. But to the helicopter parent, the reason the universe exists is for their child. Like the reason this class meets really primarily is, is for my child. The reason this university was founded 210 years ago was so that when my child came along, it would be, it would be where it is right now. Uh, the reason that this coach exists, the reason this counselor exists, the reason that this uh, team exists, the reason this extracurricular activity exists is, is for my child. Now, the thing is, we might, you know, we might, especially if you're not a parent, you might hold that at arm's length and kind of laugh about it. And, and we should laugh about helicopter parents as much as we, as we can. But especially when we are those helicopter parents. But this is what we do when we love someone or something. You love it. I mean, like, just since this is unleashed in the last 24 hours, a vehicle cannot actually pull for a college football team. But we'll stick things to it. We'll attach things to it. We'll make things fly out of the back till the vehicle participates in loving what we love. Till it's rooting for somebody. Uh, well, and you know, I just talked about the helicopter parent and the child, but when you, when you love someone, and that could be a significant other, it could be a parent for a child, you just, you just want the whole world to, to say it and enjoy it with you. Uh, I, I think on the birth of all of my children, as soon as they you know, started coming out and making the rounds, I just felt like if people just said, well, that's a cute child, and they didn't go on and on, I, I felt like, what, what is your problem? <laughs> that you would not say more than you said. You said like two sentences instead of 17 sentences about my child. This is what we do with what we love and what we enjoy. Well, 
all that are, 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 in a sense, acts of worship. And, and I, I, I do want you to think of like what we're doing right now, a service of worship, an assembly of people to worship God. But this psalm is so much bigger than that. And I want you to think in terms of what you actually love deeply. What we really enjoy and we look to it to say, you know, my, it's worth getting up in the morning if I have him, her, them, it. And I want everyone to participate in that. I want the world around me to somehow resonate with that. that that's, that's worship. Whether it's God or a child or a team or whatever. Um, you probably noticed this going through the psalm. It's very repetitive. The most frequently recurring word was praise. And it's an, it's an imperative. Praise, 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 praise. Worship, 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 worship. The second most repeated term is all. And it's just comprehensive. In the Old Testament especially, when it says heaven and earth, that just means everything and everybody. All known existence. That's the heavens and the earth. So that's the way I want to look at this psalm. It starts out talking about praise above, and then it talks about praise below. So let's look at it that way. Praise above, and then praise below. First off, above. And this is going to be true looking at both, the above and below. I want you to look at how the psalmist isn't just talking to beings, like creatures or people, but the psalmist is talking to objects that... that inanimate or objects that move that have no life, saying, I want you to participate in this. Now, first off, the worship above. Who are the creatures? Who are the beings? Look in verse 2. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Now, already this morning, in things that we've sung and said, we've mentioned the angels and I don't know how the term angels lands with you. We tend to talk more about angels around Christmas. And really, it's just been in the last few years that I think in my own thinking, I've heard about angels all my life, that my, my thinking has become more biblical. And I've mentioned this at Christmas before. One famous angel scene in the Bible is when the angels appear to the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. And usually in artwork, as I've mentioned before, the angels are all up in the sky talking to the shepherds. And sometimes you'll have uh, like two angels with a banner that says something like joy or peace or something like that. So they're, they're kind of floating, hold, holding the banner in the sky. And if you look in the text, there's nothing to indicate that the angels were in the sky. The language of the text seems to say that first there's this primary angel of the Lord who just, boom, appears to these shepherds. And it goes from being this dark night out in the fields till it lit up just from Him. But then they're surrounded by, and this is the term I want you to get, the host. You may have heard of the writer John Milton that wrote Paradise Lost. He wrote a, a poem, an ode, to the nativity. It's called On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. Here's how he describes that moment. At last, he's talking about the shepherds, at last surrounds their sight a globe of circular light that with long beams the shame-faced night arrayed. The helmed cherubim and sordid seraphim are seen in glittering ranks with wings displayed. 
Now, I know that's lofty language, but did you catch his description? It's the description of all of a sudden the shepherds look around and they're surrounded. They're not being looked down on by a choir. They're surrounded by an army. An army with helmets. An army with swords. That absolutely rings true with the Scriptures. When you, when you see the term, the host of heaven, that's a military term. Angels are real, existent, true beings in the Bible, Old and New Testament. One angel can dispatch hundreds of thousands of people. This is the psalmist speaking to the heavenly army, saying, Worship the God who made you and me. They're creatures like us. Um, But he also talks to objects. Verse 3. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Uh, I don't know the last time you were really out in a true night sky where you could see the night sky. Maybe out somewhere out west or maybe one of the parks around here. Or up in the mountains, away from you know light pollution, as as we say, where you could really see the night sky the way it's supposed to look. When you see the night sky after you haven't seen it in a long time, not spoiled by other light, it's glorious and it's humbling. There's something about just billions of stars looking at you that makes you feel. I'll come, and I'll go, and they'll still be here. And the psalmist is speaking to the stars, saying, Worship the God who made us, who made me, and who made you. And this is the interesting thing. In fact, we touched on this last week. Some psalms look at creation and say, Wow, look at how the stars should make you want to praise God. Look at how the mountains should make you want to praise God. There are other psalms that do that, but this is not doing that. It's not saying, wow, the sun is awesome, praise God. Stars are awesome, praise God. It's, the psalmist is talking to the sun and talking to the mountains and saying, do what I'm doing. Together, worship the living God. Now, why is that beneficial? It's a cool image I mean, if you enjoy being outside or astronomy. It's, it's sort of great to, to think about it in your mind. But how is it helpful what, what would you say is the most international place you've ever been? Now, different levels of travel in here. Some of you have traveled quite a bit. For me, in my level of travel, the most international place I've ever been is not a city. It's the Amsterdam airport. Now, some of you have been through all kinds of you know, major, world-class, global airports, but just from my experience, I have never seen more kinds of people in that number than the Amsterdam airport. Uh, when, I, when I got back from it the first time and I was trying to describe it to Dana, I said, you would, you would not be surprised to see like a Bedouin with a camel like going down the Concord. It, everybody is in this airport from all over the world. Now, and I feel kind of dumb saying this, but when you look around and you look up at the screens with the departures and the arrivals, you think as an American that you know that there's other like that we're just one country. You think that you know that. That we're just one country. But what you're faced with is I think pretty much I think that everything 
ultimately goes back to America. Or everything is done in reference to America. Or any flight to anywhere in the world has to go through Atlanta. Or something like that. <laughs> and as much as it may feel like that, you, just, you look at these departures and arrivals and they're leaving from not America and they're arriving in non-America and you just that there's just this whole world doing stuff without reference to my country or to me. And that's a healthy perspective because that's reality. Did you notice the fact that in this part of the psalm so far, there are no human beings yet? I mean, the psalmist is speaking, but he's speaking and he's not talking to any human beings yet. How is that helpful? It's just, it's just the case that it's our default mode to think that when we come into a gathering like this, that this gathering at the end of the day is about us. And again, this is not the only expression of worship. This is our weekly together assembly of worship. Worship is to be all of life. But even in a gathering like this, we tend to think, how did the sermon land with me? How did the music connect with me? How did people treat me coming and going? How was that experience for me? Those are not illegitimate questions. But the question I would ask is, is that the focus of why we're here? Think about it another way. Let's say that we were interacting with someone, let's say a man, and he's a professing Christian, and he's a, he's a, a Bible Belt guy. And uh, it comes to church some, but he, he's been away more than he's been, been here. And I'm not thinking of anybody in the room, by the way. And he, he's just kind of frustrated with the fact that, yeah, I know I need to be there. Yeah, I need to get there more. Well, what if we asked him the question, why should you get here more? Or if someone asked us the question, why should, why should we do what we're doing this morning? Because in our answers, we might show our cards more than we mean to. Um, it helps me in my week. Uh, it helps me be the kind of person I'd like to be. Or, negatively, I feel diminished or I feel bad if I'm not there. Or maybe for a parent, I want my kid to have this and experience it. And again, none of those things are inherently untrue. It's just that are those things the axis on which this turns? That whether we exist or not, whether we had ever been born or not, whether our kids existed or not, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Every star, every galaxy, every archangel is for Him. And we say this in our hymns, and we'll even, you know, as we talk to you about worship, we'll say this, that we're joining our voices with something already going on, but do we actually believe that? That this, when we understand what worship is, it does benefit us, and it does do it good, but our benefit and our good is not the center. That God is the center. Well, what about on earth? I mean, I'm referring to it. What about worship on earth? Praise below. Well, again, you've got creatures, beings, but you get objects that the psalmist talks to. Who are the creatures? Look in verse 7. It goes from heaven to earth. Praise the Lord from the earth. 
The first thing he says is, you great sea creatures. Some older translations say the sea monsters. Not quite sure what to do with that. Uh, have you ever seen these prehistoric shark teeth that they find? Even in South Carolina, even inland South Carolina, you know, a great white, a great white shark's tooth may be the size of about both my thumbs together. And the teeth of, of this thing are like that. I don't know, was it Megalodon or something? Some, I don't know. I'm sure it's on Animal Planet, so learn about it there. But uh, whatever this thing is, I wouldn't want to meet it. It's gigantic, or it was gigantic, and it's massive, and I'm sure it's deadly. And it's the psalmist, in a sense, saying, Hey, 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 you, you, worship the living God. And this creature saying, of course. He made me. That's why I exist, to give Him glory. The great sea creatures. What else does he list? Verse 10. Beasts, all livestock, the creeping things. Can you believe that in Psalms, bugs are called to worship? But it's true. In my backyard, big summer project, busted up a big concrete slab with my family, and I think Jake took some swings at it, some other, other friends. And uh, up underneath these, these, when we broke up these pieces of concrete, were the weirdest bugs I've ever seen. And I've never seen them anywhere else. And Mississippi has freak bugs. And I've never even seen them in, in, my, in my upbringing. And you just think, what kind of bug lives between concrete and sand and just is happy with that? And the psalmist is looking at things like that saying, You, praise the living God. Praise the God who made us. The birds, the bugs, the cattle, the big animals, and the people. Verse 11. What kind of people? Every kind of people. Kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, rulers, young men, maidens, old men, and children. Think about that. Royalty. Kings, queens, princes who bow down to no one. Bow down to him. The young, children, give God glory. Praise his name. The elderly, at the end of your life, don't give yourself over to bitterness. Don't give yourself over to fatigue. Don't say, I've, I've done and I've done and I've done and I've done and now it's me time. Don't do that. Give the living God glory. And this is amazing. Did you notice in that verse that it said, all peoples, plural, of the earth? And we've talked about this in Psalms, that especially in the Old Testament, there's the people, singular, of God, Israel, His chosen people, and there's all the other peoples of the earth. They don't know God. They don't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the psalmist is saying, Philistines, Assyrians, Egyptians... Worship the one true God and praise His name. Everybody, everything, everywhere. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that our, our family's been watching, again, this, this PBS series, documentary by Ken Burns about the national parks. And if you, I really recommend it. If you've ever seen it, especially on the first part, a name that comes up over and over and over is a guy named John Muir. And John Muir was an amazing, amazing person. 
and just uh, his influence to bring about things that happen in our country are, are it's pretty amazing. But one of the things they do in that documentary is they'll quote John Muir, and he was a Scot. And so there'll be these quotes of things that he wrote, and it'll be a man speaking in a Scottish accent, and just almost any sentence is about the mountains. To him, that just sort of encapsulated what these parks were to be about, is let any individual, let any kind of person, because this is going to be different about America. You don't have to be rich. But let any kind of person, if they can just get there, go to the mountains and be refreshed. Now, now I really want you to hear me, because I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful of John Muir and really would like to learn more about his life. But the way he talked about it was that the mountains had the ability to do something to you. And, and I had this just sort of churning inside of me. And actually, last week when I was working on last week's sermon, I came across something that Augustine read. St. Augustine? And he, he was talking about the psalm that we looked at last week that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, to the mountains. From where does my help come? Now listen to what Augustine said. He said, Therefore, let us lift our eyes to the mountains from which help shall come to us. Yet, it is not the mountains themselves in which our hope is to be placed. For the mountains receive what they may present to us. Therefore, we must put our hope in that place from which the mountains also receive. Think about what this Christian man was saying over a millennium and a half ago. He's saying, is the mountain amazing? Yes. And they are. Whether it's local or Mount McKinley or Everest, they're amazing. But if the mountain could talk, would it say to you, come to me and I'll give you refreshment? What would the mountain say? Go to our maker and he will give you refreshment. The psalmist is saying, everything in this world that I could worship, I've never seen a sequoia. I can believe if you see one, you feel like kind of bowing down. Anything in this world, whether it's awesome scenery or an awesome relationship or an awesome possession, do not worship it but in in a sense, call it to join you in worshiping the only true God who made the thing and us. But what if you're sitting here this morning and you feel unable to do that? Like, think about it this way. One of the worst places to be lonely is a big city. It's not fun to be lonely anywhere. But if, you're, if, you know, if you go to a, a, a cabin in rural Montana and you feel lonely, you know, we'd all have to say, well, yeah, you kind of set yourself up for that, you know? You're in rural Montana. Like urban Montana doesn't have that many people, but you're in rural Montana. But if, if you're in a, in a large city, if there's all kinds of people around you and you feel lonely, it's even harder. Every, look, everyone looks busy. Everyone looks like they're going to do interesting things. And, and I'm seeing friends together and couples together and families together, and I just feel like I'm looking in through a window and I'm, I'm looking in from the outside. And it, it really could be the case, and I suspect that it is, that for some of you this morning, that's kind of what Psalm 148 is. 
that the sun is praising God, and the moon is praising God, and the kings are praising God, and the whales are praising God, and the babies are praising God, and you're looking at it saying, I, that's a lovely picture, and I wish that connected with me at all. It doesn't. But if I could just kind of turn a little knob inside of me, yes, I would love to turn the knob to say, walk in Sunday morning and feel it. Walk in Sunday morning and be engaged. But I, I don't. And so, yes, it's, it's a lovely read, and that is maybe the way things should be. That doesn't hook into my experience. What do you do about that? And that's where the last verse of this psalm is amazing, if, if we'll see it. We looked at the heavens and we looked at the earth, but then look at the very end of the psalm, verse... Well, let's read the last two. Be comprehensive. Okay, talked about the heavens, talked about the earth, everybody, everything. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And of course, His name is all He is, His essence, His being. Praise God for everything He is. But then how does the psalm end? Verse 14, He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. What? It ends with a horn. What's the horn? That is a recurring Old Testament metaphor. A horn is a sign of strength probably because if you're dealing with an animal with horns, you know, if you're on the business end of a bull, that's definitely where the strength is going to meet you. And that became a symbol for uh, mighty warriors and kings. From the psalm, we don't know who wrote Psalm 148, but from the psalmist's perspective, what is the horn? What would it be? And almost certainly it would be one of Israel's kings. Maybe it's really old and it was written for David to say, Man, our God could have just let just sort of let us out to pasture, but He has established a king for us, and He blesses this king, so that if this king walks in His ways, we have wealth that we shouldn't naturally have. We, this is a huge one. We have military victories that we should not naturally have, as God blesses that king. Why did He give us that horn? And why does He bless us through that horn? We're near to Him. He loves us, even though we don't deserve it. Now, that would be what the psalmist is talking about. But we don't live in a monarchy. So what does verse 14 have to do with us? And I want you to think about this, to bring this to a close. Have you ever read, maybe around Christmas, or heard about the circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. He's the one who comes to get everybody ready for the Messiah. The story starts off with a married couple who can't have children. And they love the Lord. And they are obedient to God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous people, but she's infertile. And Zechariah is a, is a priest. And he's in the, he's in the temple... And an angel appears to him and tells him that his wife is going to have a child. And he expresses some level of skepticism. And the angel says, you won't be able to speak. You'll be struck dumb until the birth of your son. 
Elizabeth becomes pregnant, comes to term, and has a son. And, of course, the relatives are assuming that the name of the son will be some relative's name, some family name. And they ask the mother, and the mother says, his name's John. And there's no John in their background. And so they go to the dad and say, what is the child's name? And he can't talk. So he writes down, his name is John. And then he can talk. Do you know what's the first thing he said? After nine months of not talking... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Is He talking about His own son? He's talking about the man that His son is going to prepare the way for. Jesus Christ. And listen, this this covers so much ground, and if you're visiting, I hope you'll come back because what I'm about to say is something that we are developing and unpacking every Sunday. But the only way that you're going to really be touched at a heart level that draws the worship of God out of you, you, where you praise God, not for what He can do for you, although He does great things, but you praise God for who He is, is to come to know and love Jesus. Jesus said, and I quote this a lot, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And man, that's true. You read in the Gospels and you see that man hated sin. He hated it. It never touched his own practice. And especially in the form of self-righteousness and pride in the most religious people, he leaned into it hard. And he loved sinners. Whether they were prostitute, tax collector kind of sinners, or even Pharisee sinners. Did he get into it with the Pharisees because he hated them? He got into it with the Pharisees because he loved them. That's God. He did that because He's God. Because He's God, He fell under the wrath of His Father. Because there was no other way to take away the punishment that God's people deserved. So He falls under it. But He falls under it. He's not forced to do that. Because He loves His people. The only way, it's not just going to be through data about worshiping God is what we're made to do. That will not change in and of itself anybody. But it's the person and work of Jesus, our horn of salvation, that can touch your heart to really love Him. Now, I'll end with this. I, I love the story of a friend of mine when he proposed to his uh, now wife. He proposed to her on the top of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, that's a great place to do something like that. And so he proposes, and she said yes. And he's just a hilarious, creative, kind of out there sort of guy. And so he just like let out this war cry. He just went, ah! And you know, there's other people up on the roof, and there's people around. And, and so his now fiance just went, shh. And he said, what do you mean, shh? And I just think that's great. 
to say, I, I want the cars in Memphis to honk their horns and I want the blues clubs to sing about us. Because this is just maximum awesomeness and I want everyone to participate in it. That's worship. Worship is not, let me drag myself in there and endure this so that maybe I won't get fired Monday or something like that. It is to love God. As the catechism said, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But the way that people like us are able to do that is when we come to know, really know, Jesus, His person and His work on behalf of sinners. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is something that you will have to do inside of us, whether we have never worshipped you for the first time, never believed in the horn of salvation, Jesus, for the first time, or whether it's those who have known these things for decades and we, we have just become cold and indifferent and really don't want to be here or don't want to worship you in private. Lord, you would have to work in our hearts to know you as the God worth loving and celebrating. So please, with our voices and our bodies and our souls, our money and our work and our leisure, every planet, every star, cause your name to be praised. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we sang the doxology, and uh, I just could not keep from doing it again this week because the doxology talks about praising God below and praising God above. We are, we are about to exhort the angelic army, do what we're doing. So let's stand together and sing the doxology. God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly hosts, praise Father.